Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable with me, Andrew Harrison. Coming up on today's show, the Ukrainian refugee crisis reaches historic levels with some 2.8 million people displaced. Is the British government's offer to take in tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees enough? And is number 10 out of step with what the British people really want from this? Plus, what is this Azov battalion that you keep reading about on crank Twitter? We look at Russia and Friends' attempts to brand the Ukrainian resistance as Nazis. And what did you do when Spotify went down? All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet today's panel. Welcome back to former diplomat, host of the Doomsday Watch podcast and very busy man, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Andrew. So the war is, of course, consuming all all time and all oxygen. It's getting closer to NATO territory. On Sunday, Russia attacked a Ukrainian military base only six miles from the Polish border. An American journalist, Brent Renault, was killed. Are we getting close to de- decision time for NATO in this issue? I think you can argue that NATO has already made its decision, and that is to support Ukraine with particularly with weapons, but I'm sure there's other support that is harder for us to see, probably feeds of intelligence, other, you know, important information. Um, I think the the sort of clamours for no-fly zone and that sort of active NATO presence inside Ukrainian territory, I, I don't think that's going to lead to anything. Of course, what we don't know is if Russia, either by mistake or as a provocation, does something inside that sort of magic line of the NATO border, what the appropriate response would be. But I'm pretty sure for all the um, craziness of the Russians' decision to invade Ukraine, I still don't think they're crazy enough to try to do something inside a NATO country. So what happens if uh, it happens by accident? I mean, is there the will and the uh, calculation on the side of NATO to actually become involved in in a hot war against the Russian invaders? I think, again, I don't want to sound like a politician. This is very hypothetical. If there was some accident which uh, ended in a significant loss of life, you know, a stray missile landing in a forest somewhere, you know, one thing, something, you know, God forbid, hitting a, a residential area or something, I think clearly there would then be a lot of pressure and maybe there would be some kind of limited airstrike that that responded in kind to whatever had caused that you know whatever missile bunker or 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 so on but i think i think there's huge reluctance to get into a confrontation with the russians because ultimately it's i think it's reasonably clear that putin's ability to make sound decisions at the moment is severely challenged and therefore the risk of extraordinary escalation you know to some kind of cataclysmic nuclear exchange you can't rule it out and that that seems like something we all need to avoid there's been a u.s intelligence reports that russia has been asking china for aid and weapons what's your assessment of how likely they would be to become involved my feeling is that it is not in china's long-term interest to get uh, dragged into this they would it's easy to see how china is probably fairly indifferent to the fate of Ukraine and, you know, not particularly worried about questions of national sovereignty and, and you know, the, the future of democracy in Ukraine and the sorts of things that might matter to us here. 
Equally, you know, China is very dependent on its economic ties with Western countries, its ability to sell us all kinds of things. If China was seen as actively helping Russia in its war, it would then be open to the kinds of sanctions that we've put on to Russia. So I could be proved wrong. You know, maybe we'll learn in the next few days that China is supplying weapons to the Russians. But I would be very surprised if that happens. Thank God we've got a comedian on hand for the show today. Ahir Shah's tour dress <laughs> has just ended. And he's on the new Dave series, The Island, where comedians are shipwrecked on a remote island and had to make the best of it. Ahir, is there any space on this island? I mean, Andrew, as as I am uh, sort of channeling the attitude of the British Home Office towards this island, uh, absolutely not. No, uh, no, no one is allowed near my island. No space for podcasters. You did stand up for Ukraine last week. How, how did that go? Yeah, um, it was a really lovely gig at the Comedy Store. And there are lots of these gigs that are happening around the country. So do uh, look it up if there's anything uh, happening near you. I think that, you know, it's it's a fairly commonplace thing at the moment we all want to know what to do uh in order to or what what we can do in order to uh, help in any way and i think for the vast majority of us realistically uh at this stage that is trying to help out with fundraising and donating uh so i think that uh these sorts of shows uh be that i know that lots of lots of similar shows are happening in the, the music world the comedy world and what have you. Uh, so if you can, yeah, give of your give of your money or give of your time. Uh, that is certainly a helpful thing to be doing. Our guest today is Matilda Mallinson, human rights journalist and co-host of the Guilty Feminists Media Storm podcast. Welcome to The Bunker, Matilda. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Th- thanks for coming on. So immigration is one of your, your specialist areas. And this government has very much built its appeal on a huge show of being tough to the point of cruel towards immigrants. They now seem badly out of step with the British people. Is this a government that can be brought into line with what the voters really want on this, do you think? It's it's funny because I really think the government has has shot itself in the foot pegging its success so much on that Brexit mantra of taking back control, on reducing net immigration. And like you say, it is now feeling quite out of step with where the public mindset is in terms of welcoming refugees. And so I think that that what we're seeing are policies that are really prioritising style over substance. And it is a point of concern. I mean, the latest refugee scheme that's been announced by the government is this community sponsorship scheme which invites households and individuals to sponsor Ukrainian refugees to come over themselves and in theory this isn't a bad idea and and countries like Canada have had massive amounts of success relying on community sponsorship schemes to bring over larger numbers of refugees but what the NGO sector is flagging is that there's been far more attention to the headline catching nuggets packaging these policies than the actual fine print. And when it comes to implementation, safeguarding, a lot is missing. So what is the detail that they're getting wrong on this? What what, what are the areas that the government ought to be looking at? So the scheme, it looks like it's going to rely a lot on NGOs to prop up the, the sponsorship. Um, So things like providing mental support to households who are going to be hosting refugees. And and this is a very complicated game. We don't have the infrastructure to provide that support on a large scale because until this point, community sponsorship has been very, very restricted. And for any 
while it's very nice to see this like public sentiment in solidarity with refugees, I, I know how these um, sponsorships go and they are very complicated. People coming over often have a lot of trauma to process. There's cultural dysphoria. People don't always get in and these, these um, arrangements do fall apart and there needs to be a backup. But what we have seen is that actually Ukrainian refugees coming over aren't going to have access to housing benefits. So it's very unclear what they're going to do if their accommodation arrangements fall apart. And that could result in people being kind of re-displaced over again. And so I, I suspect what we're seeing it isn't a harnessing of the community power to resettle as many refugees as possible. It's more of a shifting of responsibility from the government onto the people, because this doesn't look like, from the information we have yet, a fully funded comprehensive resettlement scheme. It looks a bit like a gimmicky policy that's relying on the people to pick up the pieces of a broken asylum system. And, and so to answer your initial question, no, I don't think that this government is going to be able to play to popular demand, even when you have the Telegraph and the Spectator and the Daily Mail saying we want more immigrants because they've made it politically impossible for themselves to do that. So, so yeah, I think what we're going to see are our PR efforts to make it look like we're doing as much as possible, but policy efforts to make sure as little as possible is actually done. Your podcast, Media Storm, sort of dismantles how the media reports on big issues from the war on drugs to where the prisons work. What, what made you want to put together a podcast like that at the moment? It was really from noticing voices that weren't being included about stories. And I think the term culture war is one that we're all very familiar with. Certain groups of our society have become hot topics for debate, you know, the centre of these media storms so to speak um where there there can be quite a lot of fear monger fear mongering and demonization and, and a lack of understanding and i think when those communities don't get given a platform to respond um about the claims being made against them then 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 that's not really fair and it's not really accurate. And, and I picked up on this because, I mean, I'm an immigration reporter and I have a background working in refugee camps and I noticed it particularly with refugees being reported about but rarely having a voice to comment. But on discussion with other people in the newsroom, we realised that it's true for so many different groups, often the most marginalised groups, you know, trans people, people with disabilities, people who are homeless, are very frequently reported on, but very rarely spoken to. So that's what it was about. So let's talk about that refugee issue. After weeks of public backlash and the shame of expecting desperate people to apply for visas in Belgium or Paris, after also a lot of pressure from conservative backbenchers, the government has finally announced its plans to take in tens of thousands of Ukrainian refugees. Housing Secretary Michael Gove says households will be offered £350 a month to house Ukrainian families. Arthur, we just talked about that. Has the government been bounced into this, do you think? Oh, definitely. The, if you look at the, the progress of uh, the government's policy, it, it changes about every 48 hours and sometimes even more quickly. So right at the beginning, uh, you know, we were, we were offering uh, a certain specific number of Ukrainians the possibility to come and there were certain visa restrictions. Uh, and then it was talk about family members and then, you know, the most recent idea of, of households effectively sort of throwing open their doors to refugees, which on the face of it sounds lovely. And of course, as Matilda's already identified, it's the sort of thing that puts a lot of pressure on individuals and NGOs and takes away the responsibility from the government. 
So it, I think that the government, I imagine there's, there's a certain amount of cynicism here. Uh, if you make it, the, the practicality is fairly difficult, you can sound generous on the face of it. But in fact, you know, somebody who says, well, I'm up for this, well, they have to sponsor someone. Who are they sponsoring? How are they going to know who, who it is they're bringing, whether or not their household is appropriate and so on? So I imagine a part of this is to look, look generous on the face of things, but actually to keep the numbers relatively low. And yet that's not what, as we were just talking about, that's not what the voters want. That's not what and, and the core Conservatives support want. They want to see an actual extension of the kind of the kind of mercy that we tell ourselves we were we, we were extending in the Second World War, although we weren't fully doing that. I'm a little bit uh, dubious of the sort of good faith of the the right wing media on this kind of subject because you know th- these are the same people who've been objectifying immigrants and refugees you know for decades, and uh, it's it's very easy to to put a put a headline now saying we should bring in refugees and personally I'm I'm completely comfortable with that. But the the Daily Mail, you know, I'm sure we're only a year away from the Daily Mail saying that Ukrainians are lazy and sitting around and, you know, taking advantage of the British system or something. And I I say that simply to sort of observe that that there's such a kind of bad faith approach in reporting of these subjects by the right wing media that that it's very hard to to get a feel for how, you know, the, the public opinion is shaped on this kind of subject. I, I mean, I agree at the moment, it's really heartening to see the way that, that British people are seem to be expressing a genuine uh, desire to, to take in refugees. But I, it seems to me that the government itself has to kind of work with that in, 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 a, in a sort of serious way that is adequately resourced, rather than trying to hope that this will just be sort of outsourced to individual households. Matilda, you've written a lot about the double standards on the UK border. We've just seen this this great squeal of tyres for, for Ukrainian refugees. But if you're a Syrian refugee, you get chased by the police, you get labelled a potential terrorist, a potential scrounger. You know, we, you've had this endless stream of ridiculous ideas about you know, checking people's, dent, you know, people's dental records to find out how old they really are. You know, is this a test case for wider attitudes in society, in British society, to refugees, do you think? Yeah, I do think this this has shone a really uncomfortable light on racism, Eurocentricism, Orientalism, and how that plays into public sentiment towards refugees. Because I mean, the very press that we're saying are, are very are expressing compassion for Ukrainians have been some of the worst at fueling public fears, irrational public fears of these other refugee populations. And so what we have in Calais now is a two-tiered system whereby you have Ukrainian refugees kind of shepherded into photo opportunities, pictured having their hands shaken in warm, welcoming reception facilities, while black and brown-skinned refugees fleeing Africa and the Middle East are literally being tear-gassed, attacked by unmuzzled police dogs. You know, their tents are being slashed, blankets taken off them in freezing temperatures. And that's not an exaggeration. I used to be based out there, and I've seen that with my own eyes. And and I think we have to ask ourselves, would we, you know, would we consider wave machines to turn back dinghies of Ukrainians at this moment when sentiment is where it is? Would we consider 
confining them thousands of miles away on the Falkland Islands, you know, in detention facilities while their claims are being processed. And if we wouldn't think that acceptable in our cultural conversation of Ukrainian refugees, how is it that that is being seriously bandied around as option for other populations? And even when we look at this community settlement scheme that everyone's celebrating right now, what that will do is fast track, I mean, if, if it materializes, is fast track Ukrainians into our community, into our households and neighborhoods, while other asylum seeker populations are being ghettoized in temporary accommodation, actually in disused military facilities. Some of your listeners may be aware of, you know, Napier barracks and and some of the facilities that have been used to confine other populations of refugees. And these people wait years and years to hear back on their asylum claims with no right to work. And right now we have MS and businesses, Sainsbury's, you know, basically making employment offers to Ukrainian refugees. And, and don't misunderstand me, I don't think that it is a bad thing that we are treating Ukrainian refugees as human beings. But I think it is forcing us to ask a very uncomfortable question about why we haven't been treating other populations as refugees. And, and I think in no uncertain terms, this is a very racist lesson. Arthur, something like 2.8 million people have left Ukraine because of the war. Um, the historian Peter Gattrell uh, described it in the New York Times as an historic migration to rank with the displacements of the, of the two world wars. Forced population migrations do change geopolitics, don't they? Firstly, what are you expecting of the, the kind of the Ukrainian diaspora maybe, which may become established in European countries if they can't go home? Well, I think the first thing to expect is that, sadly, I imagine a lot won't be able to go home. And of course, some might be for really positive reasons that they, they quickly feel uh, integrated and established in a new environment. But for many, it'll simply be because the lives that they had there, are, you know, are not available to them to return to. What, you know, what what are the implications, the sort of geopolitical implications? This is a huge migration uh, moment. And, and it's happened incredibly quickly. So even in the case of Syria, a larger number of Syrians than 2.8 million have left Syria, but that was over an extended period of time. So this is really, I won't say unprecedented, but but certainly, uh, you know, a, a very, very significant development in European history. As Matilda's observed, there's a lot of kind of racial aspects to this in the way that people ultimately appear much readier to accept uh, other Europeans, probably people who are also the same religion as as the majority of the you know population in in the rest of Europe, and that may or may not make it easier. But it's certainly the case in the past that major migration moments have fueled uh, certain cynical actors in you know right wing politics, populist politics, uh, and we can see the impact of that. You can track, for example, the conflict in Libya. And in Syria, leading to a wave of right wing populists, including those in the UK who, you know, brought you, among other things, uh, the, the Brexit referendum. So um, I think, again, it's it's very heartening to see the positive impact and the degree to which actually Europe's response has blunted uh, Russia's attempts to use migration as a weapon. And there's no doubt that that's that's what they want to do. Um, that's really encouraging, but we just have to hope that that is maintained, that, that this thing doesn't sour over time. Because ultimately, however well-intentioned people are, it puts a lot of pressure on communities if you have a huge number 
of migrants arrive in one or two places. And of course, they're not going to be spread evenly throughout the continent. You know, they, they will be much more likely to be in the countries closer to Ukraine. Ah, here, looking away for a moment from the sheer misery of the refugees, perhaps we ought to spare a thought for the poor oligarchs who've had a terrible weekend. Mm. Squatters are <laughs> occupying Oleg Deripaska's mansion in Knightsbridge, Knightsbridge right now. It is, it's a terrible sight. Uh, I want to ask you, did, what did you make of uh, poor Roman Abramovich suffering the indignity of watching Newcastle fans singing, he's coming for you, he's coming for you, Mike Ashley, he's coming for you, at uh, Chelsea fans? This from a team whose own owners ex- executed 81 people over the weekend. So I think that there are a couple of things here. Uh, on the first thing, I think it's obviously fun to see squatters in Oleg Deripaska's uh, massive mansion. I think that some of the slowness with which we seem to have been moving uh, might be down to the fact that because, as uh, Oliver Buller in his uh, recent book, uh, Butler to the World, that I interviewed him for for The Daily, there is such a sort of core part of UK PLC's business model that is about allowing access to these wonderful mansions in Knightsbridge. Come this way, sir, you can have a sports team. And all of the things that we can offer for the sort of gilded life that these uh, oligarchs live, that it's almost like, well, we need to obviously sanction the Russians and everything, but let's not make the other people feel like they're also excluded. You know, you remember, as long as you're not from this particular country that we've got the beef with uh, right now, you are more than able to launder your money and reputation and whatnot through this. And yes, of course, uh, and a very stark example of that is watching the Despot Derby uh, and you see uh, Chelsea and Newcastle facing up against one another and you're like, look, all right, and I agree that there should be uh, sanctions placed against uh, Roman Abramovich and I think it's good what uh, Chelsea, the restrictions that Chelsea are going to have to make, but are we just pretending like the other team isn't owned by the Bonesaw guy? Like, that was yeah. like And we were absolutely fine with Bonesaw guy and continue to be fine with Bonesaw guy because that's the regime that currently we're going to uh, cap in hand for our oil uh, rather than uh, the regime. So it's, yes, it, it really does feel like it's, we're open for business if you're from any one of the other 194 or however many uh, countries. Uh, it's just that we've decided to put this particular group on the naughty step after a very, very long time indeed. Yeah, it is. If you decide to run the entire country like the quintessentially concierge service, then it's like you have to choose which clients you want to, you, which clients you want to frighten, don't you? The, the Sunday Times had an actual scoop over the weekend about uh, Boris Johnson overriding MI6 warnings on the Lebedev peerage. Uh, we've seen Gove and James cleverly tie themselves in knots to justify it. Do you think we are finally seeing the Russo-conservative love-in unravelling? I will say I, I did really enjoy James Cleverley's uh, statement about it, uh, which was like, "What does it matter if your father was a KGB agent? My father was a chartered surveyor." It's is that spe- essentially like, mm. implying that a chartered surveyor is as bad as a KGB agent. I mean, that's kind of mean on <laughs> chartered surveyors. It did make chartered surveying sound a lot sexier and more mysterious than I had previously. Uh, <laughs> I think thought, it's probably you know, one of I'd, Arthur's I'd, I'd, hidden skills, actually, secretly a chartered surveyor yeah, yeah, as well yeah. as everything else. Yeah, yes. uh, it's. It's on his business cards in quotation marks. Arthur Snell, chartered surveyor. Um, <laughs> if only. It, that, looks, that stuff is really complex. I can't get my head around it. <laughs> yes. Global um, exports. Yes, mm. I do think like, I don't know. I, I think I might be. I don't think I am. But, you know, I may be a hostage to fortune uh, in saying this. But some of the more sort of 
overridingly extreme uh, statements about this being evidence that Boris Johnson is some like Russian asset uh, that's been going back uh, ages seems to me rather fanciful. Uh, and it seems much more likely to me that Boris Johnson is a man who cannot stand not getting his own way, does not understand why the rules that apply to everyone else should also apply to him. And therefore, why can his mate who has nice champagne not be allowed to come into the fancy building? That seems to me uh, the most likely situation. And that that is damning in and of itself. That is the Boris Johnson who we've known about uh, for ages. And that's like one of the gigantic problems with him. But yes, uh, hopefully this does create some sort of fissure uh, between the sort of Russian money and the Conservative Party uh, that we've seen. And if I, I think part of the reason that I hope that it's not a proper, like, oh, we're paid up Russian assets thing is that, like, some of these donations in the grand scheme of things are extremely small. And it's like, you you just hope it would cost more to buy the government of the UK. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. If you spend any time at all reading the self-designated anti-war left on social media, or if you stumble into the realm of the none-of-our-business hard right, you will encounter talk of Ukraine's Azov Battalion, the targets of Putin's denazification pretext. It is a talking point in the information war that Vladimir Putin appears to be losing. But what's the truth about the Azov Battalion, and are we in danger of letting conspiracy theory run riot around Ukraine? Arthur, who are the Azov Battalion? Where did they come from? What do they want? Well... Uh, they are undoubtedly a hard right militia. Effectively, uh, they they uh, exist in Ukraine. Uh, they they sort of came out of uh, the 2014 sort of moment of chaos when, of course, Russia Russia's last invasion of Ukraine. Um, and the hard right exists in in violent form in many countries. And it exists also in Ukraine. And if you look at the elections and things, they, they get very, very uh, tiny numbers of votes. But something which I think is, is true of many countries in conflict, you know, you could look at Iraq, you can look at even Northern Ireland. When a population ends up turning to armed violence, maybe for good or bad reasons, unsurprisingly, you get a fairly wide range of, of sort of actors in, in that space, and some of them turn out to be not very nice people. So in a country of 40 million, the existence of a couple of a hundred uh, of these people is possibly not very significant. But of course, it does offer this uh, stick with which some can beat Ukraine and accuse them of, of having a Nazi problem. Just enter this as a search term, and, and what you see is not an analysis of this this grouping. It's like, look, the liberals like Nazis. The liberals are behind the Nazis. It just seems to have been completely, um, you know, taken on board as, as as a talking point. And of course, like lots of countries do have Nazis, but we don't allow their neighbours to invade them. No, that that seems like a, a reasonably good sort of uh, baseline that we should work from. I think one of the very interesting things is that the the Russian. Uh, the Russians themselves have, have invested a huge amount of effort into this sort of Nazi shibboleth. And of course, it goes back to history. So uh, during uh, World War II, as everybody knows, Germany invaded the USSR. And we, we tend to lazily sort of say Russia and USSR. But of course, Ukraine is the Western bit, right? So you had to go through Ukraine uh, to get to to get to Russia. You know, there were people in Ukraine who were opposed 
to being dominated by Soviet Russia, and therefore they cooperated with the Germans. And so it is possible for Russia to construct this sort of historic based, but ultimately uh, very contestable history that Ukraine has always been, uh, you know, has always flirted with Nazism. Uh, I know for a fact that in 2014, in parts of, of Ukraine that were, were dominated by Russians, no, notably Crimea, Russian propaganda was able to sort of whip up a genuine fear of a kind of Nazi takeover. Now, of course, again, this, this, is, this is a disinformation effort, but it, it has really got into the bloodstream uh, of, of certain Russian populations. And so in a way, this is just the outgrowth of that into, in, into the sort of wider uh, international debate. I found myself um, uh, speaking on an Arabic uh, TV news channel the other day, and it was uh, th- there was a correspondent in Moscow who was repeating this this sort of uh, this argument, you know, that, that there's a big Nazi issue in in Ukraine, and 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 the Russians are trying to manage that. And so this is a very important aspect of of Russia's disinformation efforts. I'm old enough to remember when the Berlin Wall was referred to as the anti-fascist protective rampart from the other side. The idea that absolutely everywhere outside of the Soviet Union it was fascist. Also, it's not as if Ru- so you know, Russia itself doesn't have groupings that are indistinguishable from, from you know, street Nazis. Ah, here, a um, friend of the podcast, Oz Katerji, is in Ukraine right now. And he tweeted that, I've been in Ukraine exactly one month so far. I've seen precisely one far-right foreign volunteer, three individuals wearing Azov patches, and one small unit of eight to ten guys. In that time, I've seen hundreds of armed men, men and women. The idea that the far-right is running the show here, politically or militarily, is an extreme hyperbolic exaggeration. So why are people in the West so anxious to believe that there are Nazis running around in Ukraine? Is it their get-out? clause i think that as uh arthur was saying uh the fact that you know oz has seen some of these people kicking about means that it's not a totally non-existent thing you know this hasn't been uh brought out of nowhere and obviously oz is in kiev and my understanding is that uh that particular uh battalion is more um prominent in a different part of the country yes of course it has been hammed up to the nth degree uh, by, you know, Putin's own propaganda, right? That was his thing. We're going to sort of get rid of the Nazis and drug addicts who are currently running Ukraine. And it's because I think that, uh, you know, Nazis have become, I think I think it was um, Tom Holland and Dominic Sandberg who were discussing this uh, on uh, the rest is history uh, a few days ago because uh, Nazis in the general consciousness have quite rightly just become almost like the devil uh, and everything. Then it became it becomes the ultimate justifier of whatever it is that you want to do to say that this is against uh, a Nazi and um, everything. So perhaps that's uh, part of the motivation uh, from Putin's side of it. And then I think there's also the desire of like, you know, if you've got yourself into a corner where anything that uh, certain Western countries, and particularly the United States, are doing uh, in a military sense must, of course, you know, by virtue of the fact that it is them doing it, be a terrible thing, then you wouldn't want to believe that uh, this is an aggressive war on uh, people who were just sort of milling about beforehand and uh, saying that, yes, but actually these people who are, it's actually Nazis who are doing the fighting uh, on the ground in the uh, in Ukraine and that's who the West is supporting just becomes a way of being, uh, I don't know, slightly removing 
oneself from the horror of it in some way. What surprises me is the crossover with the kind of the the the, the Trump con- conversational universe as well. It's like, well, we can't get involved. These people are Nazis. Now you care about Nazis? Now? <laughs> now you're bothered, Margaret Guy? Now you're suddenly yeah. bothered about Nazis? I remember a few years ago uh, having a very interesting conversation with my friend, the comedian Pierre Novelli, um, and I was talking about uh, certain figures in British public life, who I will not say by name because I don't know how litigious they are, but uh, I was just saying that, oh, you know, certain kinds of figures uh, who are prominent in our politics over the last few years, it really feels like, you know, they hate foreigners and whatnot, but I bet that if it had been in the 1940s, they'd have been shilling for uh, the Nazis during that period. And Pierre said to me, which I think was quite interesting, is that he didn't think that they would because uh, while they don't really disagree with those uh, politics, their problem was like they were first and foremost just hyper-nationalists. And so the idea of someone from Germany coming into Britain and attacking would have still been unacceptable regardless of them being in political agreement with the person doing the attacking. Uh, so, yes, I think that it does, it does strike us as odd when, was it like, oh, you're of the ultra-hard right and you're complaining about these other people of the ultra-hard right and is this not a bit Spider-Man pointing at himself? Maybe there is a distinction and it's the hyper-nationalism and isolationism that sort of trumps, for whatever a better word, the unity in thought of uh, where, where those ideologies would take you. Matilda, um, sort of returning to the, the, the stories of, of right now, we've seen the horrific stories of the uh, the shelling of the hospital and Russia uh, claiming it did so because it contained Ukrainian um, military installations. The heartbreaking story of the woman that we saw uh, initially being rescued who subsequently died and so did her child. I mean, it is almost too horrific to contemplate. I mean, these these mis- disinformation and misinformation stories, do you think that our established media is doing enough to, to stamp on this stuff, to make it clear where lies are being told by Russia? Oh, this is a very complicated issue because I do think, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to be a popular answer, but I do think we need to be careful about trying to create too tidy a narrative around our moral stance because these are not tidy issues and while it is so important to not fuel misinformation campaigns that justify what is a horrific and illegal invasion we also need to not be seen to cherry pick the facts because, I mean, with this Azov Battalion, for example, I mean, just this morning I was sitting on the news desk and a video came through, press agency, to be published on main, many mainstream Western media outlets um, of the destruction done today in the city of Mariupol, which is where that hospital attack was. And, and that video was from the Azov Battalion. And um, this video is a very, you know, it is shining a light on what is happening there but I don't think that we should be like necessarily downplaying things that we have expressed an awareness of in the past because a lot of the publications who are calling out this misinformation have 
said a lot of the same things that Putin is stressing now. And so I think it's a very difficult game in, in how we highlight where information is being very deliberately manipulated for political ends, as it is by Putin in this instance, without being seen to cherry pick the facts, because what that does do is contribute into to very polarised worldviews where people exposed to Russian media and people not exposed to Russian media have absolutely no compatibility between how they see events. And, and in the long term, I think that that could be really, really detrimental. And, and it's not just with this Azov Battalion. I mean, I think that the Western media has really shied away from analysis that highlights the wider context in which, you know, the West invaded Iraq in 2003 and really changed the rules of the international game. This is just an example. But, you know, Putin did not invent invading a foreign country to serve domestic political agendas. So I don't really know how the media should be playing this. But I think we have betrayed a lot of double standards in in the way that we've shaped our narrative around Ukraine. And, and I am actually for that. I think it is right that we have taken a very rare moral stance and kind of moved away from some traditional, I would say, antiquated ideas of balance and objectivity in the news. But I think we've really got to think about where we may have failed to do that in the past. Because just to give an example, BBC editorial guidelines have prohibited journalists historically from describing Israeli military in occupied territories in the Middle East as an occupying force and the respondent local military as the resistance, which is exactly the language that they've used to describe the Russian military in Ukraine. And um, and, and it's like sometimes we allow there to be contextual impartiality. We allow ourselves to take a moral stance and to select the information that is actually important for people to know because of how it will impact real people who are suffering on the ground and in situations where we don't allow ourselves to do that. And I think, you know, it's funny, while this has been going on in Ukraine over the last few days, we've we've seen major missile attacks launched in Erbil in northern Iraq this week that have barely made headlines. And, and in Calais, where you have many Ukrainians coming through, actually one of the most substantial populations you have crossing the channel hoping to get to the UK are Kurdish people leaving that exact region of Iraq. And when our, new, when our news has such a single-minded agenda, our population thinks, okay, Ukrainian refugee is real because we're seeing this suffering. Kurdish refugee is fake because we're not. And I'm sorry, because I'm aware I've digressed a bit. I just think it's a very complicated question because... Yes, we have to tackle Russian misinformation, but we cannot be cherry picking the information in a way that betrays like such a clear Eurocentric bias in our news. Is that is that an, a controversial response? Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, we have lots of opinions on the podcast. I think a lot, a lot of listeners and, and, and you know, so several of our panelists would, would kind of disagree that there's an, a, a, a kind of a comparison, a direct comparison to be drawn between what's happening in Ukraine and what's, what's happening in Israel and Palestine. But the, the yeah, general point course, is it's such, a, it's such a complicated issue. It's just this is, I mean, I've, this is something that I've seen from reporters who were have been involved in kind of both wars and and standards that they feel have been imposed on them. But I understand it's obviously a very simplistic parallel to draw. Arthur, before we move on, we are continuing to see other, uh, you know, 
baseless or poorly attested claims spreading the idea that that you know which China has joined on joined in on the idea that there are bioweapons to be found in Ukraine. QAnon conspiracy theorists are spreading this stuff. This whole thing is turning into a gigantic factory of fiction and and obfuscation. Is it working for Putin? Do you think? I'm sure it's working in with some audiences. I mean, let's not forget that uh, that there are, you know, by definition, billions of people in China who will be uh, consuming uh, state-backed media who may may see some of this stuff. And of course, as Matilda was just talking about, you've got. Uh, you know, a population in Russia that doesn't get much uh, diversity in terms of the, the messages it receives. I mean, the thing about the a lot of these stories is that there's just enough information at the very base to allow people to to go down a rabbit hole if they choose to. So, of course, there are not biological weapons, but there are biological laboratories in Ukraine because, as we've all learned, having lived through a pandemic for the last two and a bit years. Biological laboratories exist in lots of countries, and they're rather important, you know, and for for surveillance of infectious diseases and so on. And of course, the other thing that's true is just as the American government had some support to the famous laboratory in Wuhan, America, the world's richest country with a big aid program, has has supported um, biological uh, laboratories in Ukraine. So people can you can take these things that are true. And then you can construct extraordinary uh, sort of spin-off stories. And we live in an era when people are very susceptible and ready to to buy into some of these stories. Just finally, before we move on, what's your assessment of how the war is going at the moment? Because obviously Putin's initial plan to simply sweep through the country is has not happened and is not going to happen. It looks like we're heading into something even uglier and, and more horrific. Where, where do you think we are in the in this war at the moment? Well, certainly that militarily, it does seem to be uh, that, you know, Russia is trying to uh, sort of pulverize the census of population into into some kind of capitulation. But the other thing that I think may be significant, and of course, maybe nothing will come of it, but worth keeping an eye on, is that these negotiations, there have been ongoing negotiations between the Ukrainian and Russian side. There is a suggestion that you know, that might be making some progress. Uh, so there may be, you know, maybe Russia is ready to, to, for example, agree to some kind of ceasefire. Now, it's impossible to believe that uh, Russia would say, well, actually, this has all been a bit of a mistake, you know, terribly sorry, uh, we'll be off now. But even uh, assuming that that isn't on the cards, just having a ceasefire for a few days has, of course, all kinds of its own benefits. So that's something that we need to keep an eye on. And then there is this point about China. Is is it correct that Russia has appealed to China for support? And then what is China going to do in response? Uh, so I think we are at an important inflection point in the sense that the indications would point to Russia seeking some kind of new strategy after its initial strategy, which hasn't worked. Now, whether or not that new strategy, you know, it might just be flattening cities, which is, of course, what they did in Syria, but it might be something else. It might be some sort of uh, negotiated, uh, I'm not going to say outcome, because that suggests it, it's a conclusion, but it's some negotiated pause, something that allows a little bit of breathing space. Finally, something a little less terrifying. Where were you when Spotify went down? 
and was Vladimir Putin trying to stop you listening to wedding presents spin off the Ukrainians at the time? Some 400 million people were locked out in an outage possibly linked to Google Cloud. The results were confusion, panic, agonised tweets and a desperate search for something to play CDs on. Is this how it feels when the machine stops? Uh, here, are you a, a Spotify user? Did, did you notice a sudden horrible absence in your life? Uh, I am a Spotify user and a Spotify fan, and in the interest of full disclosure, my sister works for them. Uh, so, my ah. uh, to a certain extent, at least, my uh, family's uh, financial stability is contingent on you all giving them money. Uh, so, uh, but you know, like, listen, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I didn't even notice the crash because I was probably too busy listening to either the Bunker Bunker Daily or indeed, oh God, what now? Uh, just. Uh, <laughs> It's basically, I, I will just, uh, I'm exclusively going to promote things that I have a financial interest in and my tour's over. So yeah. this is, uh, but were you not take. listening to them on Spotify? Oh, no, yes. actually, Good I listen point. to my podcasts. I listen to my podcasts on Overcast um, because uh, because I can uh, change the speed with which I can listen to them. And that way I can get even more Arthur Snell, baby. <laughs> yes, and me, me talking <laughs> even faster. Well, here, I hit, I'm going to break it to you, and this may be great news, but you can change the speed on Spotify as well. So you, uh-huh. can, you can prop up your family's financial interests and put your podcast and get to get even more off the snout. It's a win-win. Well, okay, this is this has changed everything. Right, I'm logging <laughs> off and changing all of that. <laughs> You must have noticed, though, I hear the, uh, the the terrible howls of despair at the, at the turning off of the, mm. the, the the tap, where this thing that didn't exist fifteen years ago is now as indispensable as water. Yeah, uh, I think that it's a a really interesting thing that we've gone from obviously like scarcity to or relative scarcity to absolute abundance uh, in so many. Uh, things you know like it, it's not only Spotify for your music it's like oh I, I want to read this book right I have downloaded that book onto this device and whatnot and I think that over these last couple of years and maybe uh, COVID and the changes of lifestyle that have been brought about by it have something to do with it um, but personally I feel as though I'm sort of finding a middle ground and keeping but like realizing that both have their place you know like uh wandering uh while out and about or on a train or something spotify is incredibly useful and at home uh it is because i have become exactly one of those sort of early 30s wankers of a man uh i'll just put uh put a few albums on the record player uh while making dinner uh and whatnot so yes it's um we we've got into this uh incredible uh on-demand society but i think in all sorts of um spheres we're finding that uh in some areas we love it and in some areas i think that we're rediscovering the value of the thing that's slightly slower matilda how about you did you did you know did the outage affect you did you notice this i i think i was one of the lucky ones where seemed to be completely unaffected by it so not speaking from yeah personal trauma about having lost spotify but but definitely I am pretty reliant on it. And if I had been affected, I would probably be in a very different mood talking about this. What is behind this intense emotional reaction, though, that, you know, the, the thing that I expect to have immediately disappears and people were genuinely yeah. freaking out about it? Well, yeah, we have reached a place in our culture where we expect to have things at the top of a finger. And not only do we expect to have things at the top of a finger, we expect to have things free at the top of a finger. And, and I wonder if when we rethink our reliance on these 
tech companies if we might be doing that due to outage difficulties. We might also question the financial model behind them because... Well, yes. Artists on Spotify, we all know, like, they are paid in peanuts for the streams that they're getting. And and I think that, yes, the business models that have been built in the tech ecosystem are to blame, but we also have to think about consumer habits and how much entitlement we think that we do have to free, rapid content. Um and and so in the same way, we we go into major distress when Spotify goes down because we don't have what we want when we want it. Yeah, maybe we also need to wonder how entitled we feel to have these things at such low cost as well. Arthur, coincidentally, this all happened exactly as Spotify was, Spotify was blocking its service to Russia. So we all put two and two together and got piat and thought it's got to be a kind of a, a, a digital attack. Would a hostile state be wise to attack not the defense systems or the custom systems, but like Netflix and Deliveroo? <laughs> well, I think that hostile states have, have already done that in, in various contexts. And yeah, people rather unsympathetically, but it, it's, it's probably um, appropriate. Various sort of Russian billionaires' daughters who are Instagram influencers have been... Um, posting tearful videos about the fact that their their Instagram feed is going to be shut down because, you know, Instagram are withdrawing from the from from the Russian market. Um, but that is an example of how important these things are. So, you know, perhaps it, it is. Uh, yeah, that's a sort of weak spot in any society. Yeah. I mean, it sort of makes you think there's a moral there somewhere about not so much about foreign interference, but like, you know, just don't put everything through one pipe. You know, don't, don't have the Nord Stream 2 of rock that can be accidentally turned off by somebody leaning on the tap or getting a denial of service attack kind of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the solutions is just to be completely out of the loop. So I, I've never, ever had <laughs> a Spotify account and I've never used it. And I'm, I'm you know, clearly I've, I've missed out. Are you still a CD man? Well, no, I, the CDs are in the attic. So other music streaming services available. It's more than just the laziness of having never got round to downloading the app. I, I know that's that, as I say it, I can't believe I'm saying this. Anyway, there we go. Now you're the one laughing. <laughs> Arthur's been parachuted into the mountains of Tora Bora and can't work out how to download Spotify. I'm absolutely astonished. <laughs> I know, I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's Bunker, which means it is time for the panel's escape routes. What are the films, TV shows, books, music, not Spotify, evidently, anything that is going to transport them away from the dispiriting world of politics? Ah, here, what's your escape route for the week? So I'm quite late to the party on this one, but I have, after having it recommended me many, many times, started reading Empire of Pain, which is uh, Patrick Radden Keefe's uh, book about the history of the Sackler dynasty, who the family uh, had sort of Purdue Farmer and Oxycontin, and in many ways, the the opioid uh, epidemic in the United States. And I'm a third of the way through at the moment, I thought like my my reticence was, well, you know, I've got, I don't understand medicine or anything like that. So am I going to understand everything that's going on? But it's spectacularly well written. And yeah, infuriating and fascinating and uh, heartbreaking. Uh, all at once and yeah i hardly hardly recommend it arthur when you're looking at your phone wondering why it won't play music uh what are your escape routes? 
<laughs> I've got one of those phones with a rotary dialer, you know. So, uh, <laughs> no, well, actually, I, I heard Ian um, Ian Dunn say the other day that he hadn't been very good at sort of switching off during this crisis, and I'm probably similar. So what I'm about to say isn't much of an escape, really, but I re-watched last night uh, The Death of Stalin, which is currently on Netflix, which, um, you know, is has, has not yet gone down. And, of course, that film came out a few years ago, and it's very funny and very dark, and ostensibly it's about uh, the history of, of, of the end of the Stalin era in Russia, but it's sort of really about the awful awfulness of kind of authoritarian systems, but also how you can kind of laugh at them anyway. So for, for, I'm sure most of the listeners have already seen it, but if, if not, it, it's definitely worth worth looking at. Matilda Mallinson, how about you? How are you taking your mind off the horrors of the news? Um, okay, I think I might also be a little behind the curve on this one, but I, I've started watching This Is Going To Her on BBC. Is anyone watching mm. that? It's, yeah, yeah an adaptation. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, Adam Kay's um, a book about life as a junior doctor in the NHS. And look, it's funny. And, you know, someone who used to watch Casualty on a Saturday night growing up, it's pretty nostalgic. But it's also <laughs> like a lens into a universe that is just bigger than mine and in the same way that I find looking at the stars can be quite calming because it reminds you that like there is a universe beyond you and your issues and even the issues I'm writing about and reporting about every day as journalists just just watching a completely separate world and like journalism can be hard but I we are not doing the grind that doctors and nurses are doing I'm realizing this is now so selfish because it like makes me feel better to see how much they have to struggle how hard they have to work but it is also really awe-inspiring just to to see that and and unlike so many tv shows at the moment it doesn't feature the coronavirus pandemic so (laughs) you can actually get away from that and it'll give you even more respect for what the frontline heroes of our societies are dealing with at this moment in time so yeah this is going to help (laughs) Journalism, uh, it's a horror, it's a dirty job, but you seldom go home covered in blood and body fluids, do you? Not often, not on all assignments. It could always be worse, yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, my escape route, uh, if uh, listeners heard the Culture Bunker on Saturday, the brilliant album Telefish by Cattle Coughlin, formerly of Micro Disney and the Fatima Mansions, and the Irish producer, remixer, Jackknife Lee, who's worked with you too. If you only hear one, uh, I think they describe it as theocratic electropop album, for the Irish diaspora about how Ireland has changed. It's a mad satire in electronic pop uh, based around RTE, based around Telefish, the uh, Irish national broadcaster. It, it's sound, I can't stop playing it. Melodically brilliant. Cathal's got a fantastic voice. The ideas are mad, funny and strange. T-E-L-E-F-I-S. Listen to it on one of your favourite streaming services. Your mind will be expanded. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you, Arthur Snell. Thank you. Thank you, I hear sure. Thank you. And thank you to our special guest, Matilda Mallinson. Thank you very much. What's up next on Media Store, Matilda? Well, it's our final episode of the season, and although there will be more. And this episode, we are looking at ableist discrimination in the workplace and the failings of equality law. 
There you go. Well, listen to that after you've listened to The Bunker, people. We'll be back tomorrow with another daily and the full-length show this time next week. And don't forget a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday. If you like this podcast and you want to uh, maintain high-quality free entertainment, free at points of use like the NHS, you could support us on Patreon. You'll get the episodes early without adverts and other exciting stuff too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. One of the benefits is you get a shout at the end of the podcast. And here are some shouts for some of our new backers. Hello, and many thanks from me to Justin Purrington, which is excellent, Nicholas Frid, and Helen Young. And best wishes from me to Graham Carrington, Sapphorism, which I suppose is a combination of Sappho and uh, Aphorism, so that's a really interesting name, and Natasha House. And a big thanks from me to Nathan Vale, who sounds like a private eye of some sort, Jill Westwood, and Chris Atfield. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ahir Shah and Arthur Snell. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jonas Ofranievich and me, Alex Reese. editing directly from The Bunker. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.